Lord Jesus, we utter our prayers and petitions and praises to you and you alone. You have distinguished yourself from all pretenders to the throne, and by your grace we see it. We believe it. We know you are now high and lifted up. That's where you belong. Thank you before your return. We see you for who you are. It's our desire that many more would. We're not hopeless, Lord Jesus. We're just transferring the sources of our hope in these days. You are the God of all hope. We, and we pray increasing numbers, would look to you. None other. To you, all-sufficient one, sovereign, good, caring, compassionate, able. Lord Jesus, you're not an option. We need you to live. Oh God, giver of life, help us to live in a way that is pleasing to you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Such a beautiful picture. Next time we do this, feel free to come up here and look out. It's the beautiful picture of a church at work. And prayer is work, is it not? Prayer is work. It's the work of the church. It requires discipline. Maybe when we do this, we'll add a minute each time. We'll get better at it. Just like a disciplined long-distance runner, maybe we'll learn to pray longer and longer and longer. It's not that we need that to get the Lord's attention. We need that to get things out, to unburden ourselves. And what we just did is the distinct work of Christian people. Uh, there are many other strategies for change, but this is the distinctively Christian one. We have the Father's ear. He is our Father. Say with me, our Father who art in heaven. That's enough to feast on. Our Father who art in heaven. We should brag about him. He's in heaven. Wow. People gather together, religious groups, as we are tonight, in certain structures, churches, synagogues, mosques, holy places. They're very different. Religions are very different. Beliefs, practices, and procedures, rituals, format. The buildings in which people gather to worship are very distinct, and yet they, they have something in common. I'll tell you what they have in common in just a second, all holy, so-called holy places. But first, I'd like to give you a, a brief sampling of the diversity of holy places, some of which are quite familiar to you. For instance, here is a photo of a very well-known Muslim holy place. Does it look familiar? Have you seen this before? It's called the Dome. That's right, the Dome of the Rock. It's the third holiest site in Islam. There are other holy places, but for Muslim people, this is the third holiest next to Mecca, where Muhammad was born, and Medina, both in present-day Saudi Arabia. After those two, this place is the holiest place on earth for Muslim people. It's a beautiful building structure built over a rock, bedrock, from which the Quran teaches Muhammad ascended to be in heaven from this rock. Hence, it's the third holiest site in Islam. It's quite beautiful. 
a construction on it began in 689 A.D., 689. Took a number of years to complete, and over the years, many things have befallen it. For instance, in 1927, there was a rather severe earthquake that caused much damage to it, requiring a lot of refurbishing and remodeling. So that's a holy place there in Jerusalem. Here's another one. It's a Baha'i holy place. Baha'i is a religion. Began in the 1800s in Persia. Baha'i. They have very interesting points of view. Maybe one time we'll do a series on the religions of the world just to compare them and see what they have to say. This particular very beautiful bit of architecture uh, is located north of Chicago in a suburb called Wilmette, Illinois. There are five to six million adherents of the Baha'i faith worldwide. There are a limited number of temples. They're quite ornate and beautiful. And as I say, this is one. It was uh, completed in 1953. It's in Wilmette, Illinois. And then here is another very well-known holy place. It's a Roman Catholic cathedral called Notre Dame. Anyone ever been to Notre Dame? Yes. So you know it's in uh, Paris, right? Right along the Seine River. It's quite beautiful, isn't it? It's it's a Catholic uh, cathedral. Its construction was begun in 1163. It's old. It was desecrated during the French Revolution in the 1790s, requiring uh, a lot of work to get it back in shape. And then, in particular, in World War II, it sustained damage, particularly to its stained glass. In fact, they were replaced, but not the same way. The stained glass windows depicted biblical scenes. Now they're just geometric patterns. Interesting. Anyway, that's the Cathedral of Notre Dame. A program began in 1991 there to maintain it and to refurbish it. It continues down to this very day. I have to tell you, there's like hundreds of architects and engineers and everyone to sustain this beautiful holy place. And then here is a uh, Hindu holy place. By the way, I'm going someplace with all of this. In case you're wondering what's going on, hang in there. Uh, here is a Hindu holy place. It's a uh, Complicated, complex, colorful. It's, you can't hardly take it in with your eye. It's, it's, I mean, textures and colors, it's magnificent. It's one of the largest Hindu holy places in Europe. That's where you will find this one in Europe. And then here is a Buddhist holy place. This particular Buddhist temple is located in Hawaii, in o Oahu, Hawaii, this Buddhist temple. And then here is a, uh, a Russian Orthodox holy place. That's familiar Russian Orthodox architecture, isn't it? That onion-shaped dome on top, you see these. That's Russian Orthodox architecture there. And then, uh, well, here is a holy place. Oh, we're just a little bit closer to home. In fact, it is home. There you go. We made the cut. That's your church. That's Sagemont Church. That's the new church. We've been in it, I think, if I'm right about this, about two months. What a massive effort. And so many people it took to provide this for us. We'll celebrate September 9th. Mark it down. Bring a neighbor. 
we want to just really, really celebrate and acknowledge those who contributed to this wonderful debt-free structure, not the least of which is our pastor. He led us through all of these days. So these are very different holy places, aren't they? In fact, you might think, I have no business even including ours with all the rest. But I did it for this reason. Though they're different, they have this in common. It's, uh, it's this fact. They're all in a state of decay right now. They are all in the process of deteriorating. What a thing to say for those of us who waited so long to get into this new place. I want to tell you, from the moment it was opened, it began its downward spiral. I don't want to ruin your day, but that's just the way it is. See, what all the holy places I showed you have in common is that not a one of them is meant to last eternally. They're all earthly. So the point is this. If you're somebody... If there is somebody who has a disproportionate attachment to a holy place on earth, you in a heap of trouble because it's not going to last. So if you think a holy place has a character of holiness possessed by its carpet and bricks and uh, chandeliers and all and steeples, you're in trouble. Listen to me. All it takes is one hurricane, and your holy place is gone. Uh, one act of terrorism, your holy place is gone. One earthquake, your holy place, the one you depend on, you're staking your spiritual well-being on, is gone. So you see it's kind of a serious matter that you do not place undue dependence on a holy place that's earthly. Wouldn't it be great to have a holy place that's going to last? I mean, the kind of place where there is a functioning priest interceding on our behalf like I know this is far-fetched, but I'll throw this out. Like forever. Wouldn't it be major cool to have a kind of high priest who stood in the gap between us and deity, almighty God, perpetually, and in a sanctuary, ah, this is, far, this is like science fiction, not made with hands, not subject to decay, deterioration, or destruction, but which has an eternal, wouldn't that be great? Yeah, it would. Where is it? How do you find it? The writer of Hebrews wants to direct us to it. And that's exactly the theme we will develop in the next few moments. It's out of Hebrews chapter 9. We're calling this study the letter of better. Because Hebrews gives us almost a list of things and places and covenants and priests and sacrifices that are far better than you think. And so tonight we're going to, in chapter 9 of Hebrews, speak about the fact that there is a place that is better than any other holy place. And I'm only going to call your attention to a few select verses in chapter 9 because it's really long and I am really long-winded. Thank you for sharing that with me over the years. Anyway, um, 
what I'd like to do is in subsequent Wednesday nights, we'll look at other parts of chapter 9. But I'd like for us to focus on this theme tonight because I think the writer of Hebrews uh, is emphasizing it, a place better than any other holy place. So take a look at verse 1 with me. It says, now even the first covenant, remember we spoke about that last week, the old covenant, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship, and look what it says, the earthly sanctuary. The noun is sanctuary, the adjective describing it is earthly. It's a sanctuary. What kind? It's an earthly sanctuary. There was an earthly sanctuary even associated with the old covenant which preceded the new covenant. See, ancient Israel was given an earthly sanctuary called a tabernacle, and then it gave way to something a little more permanent called the temple. And the tabernacle was a tent, movable tent, containing magnificent furnishings of great significance. So too did the temple contain the same furnishings. In fact, these are so significant that when God called Moses up to the mount called Sinai, he gave him not only the Ten Commandments, but also very specific stipulations with regard to the construction of the tabernacle and how all of its furnishings were to be fashioned. In other words, this is God's idea, this tabernacle and this temple and all that is in it. And the writer of Hebrews in verse 2 and on wants to remind us of some of the furnishings, some of the items in tabernacle and then temple. And so you see there was the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. The lampstand, we call it a menorah in Hebrew. You've seen it, seven stems. Actually, it has six. It has a center stem and then three on this side, three on this side. You can read about it in Exodus. God was very serious about how it would be fat. It was solid gold was the lampstand. And uh, also there was a table made of a certain wood, acacia wood. You find it in Israel and also in Africa. It's a special kind of a wood, acacia wood. And the table was made of that kind of wood and then covered in gold. Can you, can you imagine, can you try to visualize the beauty of these furnishings? And on the table, was bread of a sacred kind, consisted of 12 loaves, one representing each of the tribes of Israel. These are some of the furnishings. These were in a place, a room, called the holy place. Uh, You couldn't get into it, neither could I. There was a veil separating the holy place from the courtyard outside, the temple and tabernacle. We could get to the courtyard, but we couldn't go through the veil into the holy place, restricted access. Don't you see? This is a holy place. Unholy people. You can't just you can't just walk in. You you know, just as I am. No, no, no. That didn't apply to tabernacle. Just as you are doesn't cut the mustard. You're out there in the courtyard. Listen, if you're a Gentile, you're in the court of the Gentiles. If you're a woman, you're in the court of the women. If you're a Gentile woman, you ain't nowhere. 
But even if you're a Jewish male, only a select few could get close to the temple, the holy place. And not only that, it gets even more limited, that is to say, the access, because behind the holy place was another kind of a room called the holy of holies. And this, the writer in verse 3 tells us about. Behind the second veil, there was, see, there was a veil in front of the holy place, and then a second veil separating the holy place from the holy of holies. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called, just as I said, the holy of holies. If I could use the vernacular, it was holy to the max. That's exactly what the writer is trying to tell us. And it was so holy, its access was so limited, only one person could gain entrance into it, and him, only once a year, he was the high priest, Aaron, or one of his descendants. And he would go in on Yom Kippur, the day of covering or atonement, the day of atonement. Why, he can just walk in there. Are you kidding me? Because he's like you and I. He's got plenty of sin. He had to come with blood, you see, first for his own sin and then for the sins of the people. Well, why didn't he just bring the people in there? No, because access is limited. It's the Holy of Holies. The high priest couldn't even bring the people in there. He could only bring blood and petitions to God on behalf of the people. And there were items in this room of a holy nature, and the writer of Hebrews tells us of them in verse 4, having a golden altar of incense, and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. Here's a kind of an artist's rendering of what that uh, ancient tabernacle looked like. So you see that purple-violet first uh, veil, and then the, you enter into the holy place, and then you go to through a second veil, only if you're the high priest, into the holy of holies, in which we're told was a golden jar and it held manna. God provided it to Israel in her wilderness wanderings, and the manna is a constant reminder of God's faithful supply. And there was Aaron's rod. We read about it in Numbers a long time ago. It budded. It was a reminder for God's people in their journey not to complain. Stop groaning. Don't complain. God doesn't like it. And then there was the third item, stone tablets, Ten Commandments. God inscribed on it guidelines for life. To cramp our style? No way. He cares how we live. And so those commandments were a reminder. Walk this way. I care how you order your steps. And so in the Holy of Holies, the writer tells us also in verse 5 was something called the mercy seat. And above it, also golden, were cherubim. Beam means plural, more than one. Cherubim, angels like guards, hosts representing the holy presence of God. High priest came here with blood. He put it on the mercy seat, pleading for God to be merciful on behalf of the people out there. They couldn't come in, you see, restricted access. So that was the earthly tabernacle, earthly holy. I mean, there's so much we could say about the tabernacle and the items in it. But even the writer of Hebrews says this in verse 5, of these things, 
we cannot now speak in detail. Even the writer said that. Why? <clears throat> Maybe he's running out of time like I am. I think it's mainly because he didn't want us at this point to get distracted from the main point. And there is a main point. I think the writer of Hebrews here wants to make, and this is it. Even this glorious, magnificent tabernacle, even this holy place, ordained and designed and mandated by Almighty God, even that one was not meant to be permanent. Not the tabernacle, neither the temple. Even these earthly holy places ordained by Almighty God were not meant to be permanent. They were meant to serve a purpose, which was actually to point to a real tabernacle, a real holy place, not subject to decay or deterioration. So why is the writer of Hebrews making this point? Remember who he's writing to. He's writing to Hebrews, hence the name of the book. They were a group of Jews. Not all believed in Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. They were mixed together. You couldn't really distinguish precisely a believer from an unbeliever. Could I be frank? I don't want to be too offensive. We have the same problem in our local churches today. Sometimes it's a little hard to distinguish the wheat from the tares. Sometimes you say, boy, that person is not really acting like a Christian. That may be because they ain't. They're just in the building at the time. So the writer of Hebrews has a problem. It's a mixed assembly of believers and those who merely professed belief. And those who merely professed belief, you know what was happening? They were being persecuted, and they were on the verge of going back to the old tabernacle. They were, they were on the verge. And I could see why. Can you imagine how glorious it was? Here's an idea of what the temple in Jerusalem looked like. Take a look at this particular photo. This is a scale model. You can see it in Jerusalem when we go there. We go to this place to show people the temple. All marble and gold on a hill. You saw it from any direction, miles around. Can you imagine when the sun would shine off? It was glory. So the persecuted Jews, who were really not reborn, decided, whoa, this Jesus thing is not all it was cracked up to be. People are giving me a hard time for identifying with him. Good night. And we're being persecuted. We're losing our jobs. They're not letting us in their schools. Oh, I remember the days when we used to hang out at the temple. Remember how cool that was? Even though we couldn't get inside, like the marble, the gold. We were like the in crowd. Now we're the out crowd. We want to leave the out crowd, go back to the in crowd. So the, the writer of Hebrew, he's not concerned about people losing their salvation. No. Why not? Because it's an impossibility, that's why not. He's concerned about people professing to be saved, but showing none of the evidences thereof. And on the verge of going back to the old good time religion, which ain't so good. It's all earthly stuff. It's an earthly priesthood, and it's an earthly sacrificial system, and it's an old covenant, and it's buildings that are in deterioration and all the rest. In fact, what happened to that beautiful temple you just looked at? It ain't there. 
I went to Jerusalem. I looked all over. It's nowhere to be found. In A.D. 70, the Romans destroyed it, burned it to the ground. You can see rocks from it still there in place 2,000 years later, tossed from on high down to the ground. Don't you see even the temple authorized by God had a shelf life? It wasn't meant to last forever. People's eternal hopes and aspirations were not to be unduly connected to it. It only foreshadowed the ultimate reality. And so the writer of Hebrews doesn't want us to settle for what's earthly. He wants the earthly symbols to direct us irreversibly to heavenly realities, which he introduces to us in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. I want to know what can be more perfect than perfect. Usually when we say perfect, it's a superlative. But the writer adds to it, it's not just perfect, this Jesus, a better high priest, entered an even more better, more perfect, holy place. Why is it more perfect? Well, for one thing, as it says, it's not made with hands, meaning it's not subject to decay or deterioration or code violations or whatever. And it's not of this creation at all. It's not subject to time and decay and humidity and moisture and entropy, what all this kind of stuff. Not only this, it's more perfect for this reason. I don't care how glorious is the Baha'i temple, the Hindu thing, the Muslim deal, or our church. I don't care how glorious it is. If one of those glorious holy places is located in a place, that means you can't find it in other places, which means if you want God through it, you have a localized God. you got to go to that holy place to find God. When the temple stood in Jerusalem, you had to go to Jerusalem. And it had to be on Shabbat, the Sabbath, not on Tuesday. There's nobody home there on Tuesday. And by the way, you as a Gentile couldn't even get that close to it. But this is more perfect. The one the high priest entered into provides universal access to anyone at any time time. The first tabernacle was perfect for what it was designed to do. What was it? Point to the better one. Hence, we read this in verses 8 and 9. The Holy Spirit is signifying this. The way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed. See, you can't get in. It hasn't been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. Now verse 9, which is a symbol for the present time. All that stuff is just a symbol for the present time. It's just a symbol. It shows us we're sinful. It shows us God is holy. It shows us we need a high priest, a mediator whose shed blood can get us access into the sanctuary. But you don't want to go back to the buildings and the traditions of man and all that earthly stuff, all of which maybe are not bad in and of themselves, but are mere shadow. A shadow doesn't have any reality apart from the reality. 
It reveals, the writer of Hebrews is telling to people, you have the reality, the high priest Jesus, who serves you in a heavenly sanctuary, regardless of how tough it is to state your belief in him. You don't want to go back to the symbol when you have the reality, do you? Don't do it. That's what he's writing. And where is, by the way, this more perfect tabernacle, in case you're enthused about it and want to find it? Well, here's the direction to it. It's in verse 24. Uh, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but, so here's where it's located, into heaven itself. That's where it is. That's where he is. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. Folks, the more perfect holy place is in heaven itself. The earthly holy place, intensely limited in terms of access, subject to decay and destruction, all the things of earth, access limited in one place only. Only the high priest could gain entrance into the holy of holies once a year, but the more perfect holy place in heaven, the one not made with human hands, it provides access to all people who accept the one who mediates a better covenant from there. The high priest after the order of Melchizedek, not Aaron, his name is the Lord Jesus. And what is specifically the nature of his ministry, the better high priest in the better sanctuary? What is the nature of his ministry for us now? Well, we're told in verse 24 to appear in the presence of God for us. Folks, heaven itself is now opened up. Access to the Holy of Holies is denied. Heaven is opened up for any who will accept the high priest, the Lord Jesus. Christ has entered not simply on his own behalf. He's entered entirely so as to appear before the face of God for us. He represents us right now. He prays for us, and he accomplishes for us what no other priest could possibly do. We saw what it was way back in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Therefore... He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since, here's the point, he always lives to make intercession for them. I always need it. He always provides it. No day off. The sanctuary is eternal. The intercessory work of the great high priest, the Lord Jesus, is eternal. I am secure. You are secure. This is what the more perfect high priest Jesus is doing for us in the more perfect sanctuary heaven right now. He's in the presence of God. Think about it. As our mediator and as our advocate. And he is offering not your merits and not mine. (laughs) He's offering his merits on our behalf to the Father. He's offering, no, no, not your righteousness and not my, he's offering his righteousness to the Father on our behalf, you see. No, 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 no. he's not offering your standing. He's offering his standing to the Father 
on our behalf. Look, here's the point of all this. Don't trust your eternity to anything made with hands. Don't trust your eternity to man-made religion, man-made self-help books, man-made holy places. This is not the church. You is the church. We're just occupying space. Don't entrust something as significant as your eternity to man-made government. Come on. Entrust your eternity to the one who serves in the sanctuary, not made with hands. Jesus stands in the very presence of God face to face. You know, uh, one of the items in the holy place of old was incense. Why? The high priest had to ignite it so that smoke, the smoke of God's presence, Shekinah, Shekinah glory, we call it, and the smoke of incense would fill the holy place. Why? As a shield between the sinful, ironic high priest and an otherwise unapproachably holy God. But in the more perfect sanctuary, all is clear before Father and Son. <laughs> there needs, there's no veil anymore. It's torn asunder. Imagine, if you will, the Son looking into the eyes of the Father and the Father looking into the eyes of the Son. And why is the Son doing this? And who is he doing it for? Two words which just ought to turn you on. For us. That God the Son is in the presence of God the Father is awesome enough, but that God the Son is in the presence of God the Father for us ought to set you free, ought to turn you on, ought to make you do flip-flops on the inside, ought to make you want to be a devoted follower of the Lord Jesus, ought to make you want to shout and scream and praise and dig in in spite of what may be coming against you. You would say, nobody was for me with this stature. I'm not going back to man-made religion. I have a connection, a relationship with the one who is connected to the Father as Son and stands face to face with him on my behalf. Who are you going to go to? Where are you going to go? When a Christian abandons the faith for something else, I'm sorry, I have to wonder if we're really talking about a Christian. When you have tasted the merits of the Lord Jesus, where are you going to go? Who has a better deal? There's nobody. Listen, I want to tell you something. <clears throat> God made us. You are not self-generated. God made you, me. How? In his own image. He didn't say that about other created things. Us in his own image. Why? For fellowship with him. A mind to think about him, a heart to love him, a will to obey him. Rocks don't have that stuff. We do. What did we do with this special equipment? We use our minds to uh, deny the existence of God. We use our hearts to lend our affections to everything but God. And we use our wills to disobey God, do our own thing. 
What would you do if you were God? Wipe them out! But here's the deal. I think we can call this amazing grace. He doesn't wipe us out. He continues to extend himself to us. Down. He sends prophets and apostles, his representatives, with his words. Covenants. A mediatorial system of sacrifice to cover up for our nakedness and for our sins so that the gap could be bridged between us and him. And he sends meeting places where he said, I will fill it and meet with you there. It's the tabernacle and it's the temple and all this stuff. And as awesome as that is, all that is just a foreshadowing because who he really sent down, typified by all the rest, this is hard to get, his own son. Are you kidding me? See, the vocabulary is specifically chosen because we could relate to that. You're not giving your child for people who spat upon you. You're not giving your child for someone who rejects and despises you. But God did. See, it's amazing. That's not just a song. That's a theological truth. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that in spite of my mistreatment of his son, he sent him anyway. And what the son did did once superseded the endless succession of sacrificed bulls and goats and priests and temples and tabernacles and all the rest. I know this because after Jesus offered himself and while he was hanging on our behalf, he said, it's finished. That's what he said. And he died for a while. And then rose and went home. He's back home. Not the same. We sent him to his father with scars. Bruised. Beaten. Holes. We sent him home that way. But he's home. He's home where he belongs. And he's in the father's presence. There's nothing between them. All is clear. Between father and son. The son is looking into the father's eyes. Father's looking into the son's eyes. What are they seeing? You, me, this is no religion. Don't denigrate this by calling it religion. They see you, they see me. How? Forgiven, adopted, clean, sanctified. Chosen, equipped, and on our way home. They see us soon joining them in the sanctuary, the holy place made without hands. Are you looking forward to it? Good. Because that tells me something about you. Look at the last verse in the chapter, verse 28. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time not to bear sin. Did that. But to those who eagerly await him, 
for salvation. Do you eagerly await him? If you do, this is what it tells me about you. You're a saved individual. That's one of the marks of salvation. If your hopes, if you are eagerly awaiting November as the answer to the world's problems, <laughs> I'm telling you, decay, deterioration, destruction, and all the... Come on. If your hope is in anything made with hands, including a White House... But if you are eagerly awaiting his second coming, that tells me your citizenship is in heaven. And the best is yet to come. One day he shall appear and take us home where he is. Eagerly await it. This is a sign of salvation. Our sanctuary is in heaven. Our Savior is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Could I tell you something very uh, offensive and maybe even wrong? When we wonder, how do we take back America? I don't think we're going to. I didn't say give up and cease to do what we did, pray, witness, be salt and light. America's not eternal. I don't think we're going to take back America. I think we're moving in exactly the direction the Bible tells us God saw us moving in. Until all the world is on a big E for empty. And some, even my people, look upon him whom we have pierced and ask for his forgiveness. I don't think we're going to take back America. <laughs> and this will get me in real trouble. I'm not too terribly concerned about that. <clears throat> I am eagerly awaiting the return of the far better high priest to take me and those who call upon his name to the far better sanctuary in heaven. Our high priest is in heaven. Our sanctuary is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our hope ought to be in heaven. So no matter what may transpire here, and I hate to do this because I feel like such a bad guy, it's going to get worse, except probably just shortly before the election. It's interesting to me how statistically the economy gets miraculously better right before the election. Interesting to me. It's miraculous. I do not think we could sustain the immorality, the indebtedness on a worldwide scale. I mean, I watched the closing ceremonies of the Olympics. Good night. It's not exactly HBO, two in the morning. The closing ceremony of the Olympics, it was so dark and decadent. Gothic this and crazy songs and music and... I don't think we're going to stand the weight of our decad decadence and deterioration. I, d I, don't, I don't. But no matter what may transpire here, everything concerning those who have accepted the Lord Jesus is settled in heaven. 
the more perfect high priest, the Lord Jesus, is looking into the face of his Father right now. And so too should you and I look right now fully into the face of the Lord Jesus, resting in his finished work for us, resting in his present intercession for us, and resting in his return for us. As he has turned his eyes upon his Father, we ought to turn our eyes upon him. It's my favorite hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. You know it? Turn your eyes upon Jesus, it says. Look full in his wonderful face. Why? What will happen? The things of earth will grow. It's strange. They'll grow strangely dim. How? In the light of his glory and grace.